Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we begin now at verse 1. Again, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, that is Solomon himself, he's trying to explain and understand life apart from an eternal perspective. It's not that he's an atheist. He understands that there is a God. But he also believes under the premise of this book that there is no eternal accountability, that this life is all there is, and that man has nothing to answer for after this life. Now, given that premise, he explores whether or not life has any meaning. And I'll tell you, because he's told it to his time and again, the answer to that question is no. Life is vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty. But Solomon isn't content just to answer the question. He's going to explore it and attack it and come at it at every different angle because before he can bring to us the good news, which, by the way, isn't until next week. I, I'm just telling look, tonight was the night for you to miss. Don't miss next week because it'll ruin everything if you miss next week. No, tonight was the night for you to miss. But being as you're here, we're just going to plunge into this bleakness of life with Solomon and his attempts, his attempts to make the best of a bad situation. Verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Doesn't that just sort of slap you in the face right there? Look at verse 1, the first part of the verse. uh, Okay, a good name is better than precious ointment. Well, isn't that nice? It's very sweet. You could see that written above Grandma's hearth, right? She'd say, yes, okay, good, Solomon, you agree with that? And then the next part, just as, as, as evident as that is, he throws this one at you. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Let me continue on. Better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the preacher was in a mournful and discouraged mood as he considered the meaninglessness of life in a world without eternity and accountability in the world beyond. And he continues that tone by coupling something that's very evident, right? That first statement, a good name is better than precious ointment. He just throws that as something that's true, right? We all understand that to be true. And then right answering that statement, he hits us in the face with it. He says, and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. You've got to admit, for somebody to be talking like that, for somebody to be saying that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth, that comes from the deep and pained sense of meaninglessness. And that's what the preacher suffered under. It made him feel that death was better than life. Now, let me just ask you, is that true? As a Christian, from a New Testament perspective, we look at this and we say, well, yes and no. I'll tell you something right now. The day of my death is going to be better than the day of my birth. I can't wait to graduate to glory. It's going to be a beautiful thing, right? It's going to be a beautiful thing to advance to this world to the next. Now, I'm looking at it from a perspective that Solomon did not allow himself to look under until the very end of the book. 
But listen, we in Christ, we know that the day of death, man, that, that, that death is the last enemy. That when that's conquered, everything else, that, that death is the death of death. That we die no more after that. That it's only life eternal with Jesus Christ. We know this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that. Solomon did not. But on the other hand, we're sort of like where Paul came from in Philippians, right? We are hard-pressed between the two. Because that we know that to part this world means that we'll be with Christ in glory. But to be here now means that we can be effective with him. To be here now means that there are ways that I can serve God right now that I will not be able to serve him and glorify him in heaven. Do you realize that? Do you understand that there's a way that you can serve God right now? And this is why it is such a horrible lie. For any one of God's children, much less any one of his creatures, but especially for God's children to ever give in to the deceptive lies about suicide and the meaninglessness and loose uselessness of your life. Friends, right now in this world, in this life, you are granted the privilege to suffer for Jesus name. You'll never have that privilege in heaven. Right here, right now, you have the opportunity to minister to broken, hurting lives in the name of Jesus. You're not going to have that opportunity in heaven. Look all around those streets of gold for broken, hurting lives. You're not going to find them. Right now, you have the opportunity to lead people to Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen in heaven. There's so many things that we have the opportunity to do right now. We have the opportunity of honoring and glorifying God whom we have not seen with our own eyes. That's only given us to do on this side of eternity, not in the world beyond. And so we're hard-pressed between the two, are we not? And so we say, yes, it'll be glorious when we pass from this world to the next, but we leave that time entirely, entirely within the hands of God, and we're fully determined to use every moment between now and the time we pass into eternity for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Solomon, in one sense, did not know this because he could not know it. In another sense, he deliberately deprived himself of this knowledge for the sake of the argument of the book of Ecclesiastes. And therefore, he makes this dramatic statement that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Solomon knew our tendency to simply ignore or wish away death. It's better to be squarely confronted with the reality of death. And the house of mourning is a fine place to take it to heart. It seems that the preacher has rejected his previous hope of finding meaning in life and pleasure or in accomplishments or in wisdom. Now there's only death and one should not ignore it. Death can teach you things even when life cannot. And oh, we've separated ourselves or at least mostly so. So much from death. People aren't buried or dying in our midst. We have a way of pushing them away. And on those occasions when death does crash in onto our daily life, it's a painful and traumatic experience. But yet there's value in it if we will see it. As he says right here, sorrow is better than laughter. You see, there the preacher goes against all intuition. Who among us would say that? Who among us would say that it's better to sorrow than to laugh? Yet he's determined to sweep away our illusions, our our wishes about the meaninglessness of life in this under the sun premise. Now, again, rejecting Solomon's premise 
We do not believe that sorrow is always better than laughter. We don't reject it because we prefer an illusion or a wish. We do it out of confidence in a God that we will answer in eternity and who has promised to reward good and punish the evil there. Even so, it's often true that wisdom is found in the house of mourning more so than it is in the house of mirth. Verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. The preacher continues his previous thought that man finds wisdom in adversity and suffering far more than he ever finds wisdom in ease and in comfort. That the laughter of fools is nothing more than a momentary sound, leaving nothing but substance behind. To throw some dry, you know, sagebrush under a fire and just see it blow up in an instant, right? It almost explodes, that tumbleweed, right in the flame, but it leaves nothing behind of no substance. And then he says, surely oppression destroys a man's reason. For all of Solomon's praise of the instructive role of adversity, he also understood that suffering had its limit. It could destroy a wise man's reason. And therefore, he says there at the end of verse 9, do not hasten your spirit to be angry. You see, he gave us two proverbs celebrating patience, but then he warns us against impatience leading to anger. Living with an under-the-sun premise makes a person impatient and then angry, and then anger rests in the bosom of fools. I wonder how much anger there is in people simply because they're somehow deeply persuaded that their life is meaningless. And they have a deep anger. They, they, They express it against those closer to them. Maybe express their anger against their spouse or against the children in their home or against their co-workers. But really, they're just angry at life because it seems so meaningless. But that's how it is in an under-the-sun world. You have this constant sense of frustration, of emptiness, because something gnaws at you. You say, what's it used for? What good is it all? Well, Solomon is going to plunge us down into these waters time and time again. It continues on now, verse 10. Do not say... Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Don't you love what he says there in verse 10? Do not say why were the former days better than these? Solomon understood our tendency to romanticize the past and to think that it was better than our current time. And don't we always do this? This has been human nature from the beginning of time. And he cautioned against that tendency. He knows that the meaninglessness of life in his under-the-sun premise is not a new phenomenon. Matter of fact, he's the one who told us in the very first chapters of the book that there's nothing new under the sun. It all is that way. 
And so he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, verse 11, and profitable those who see the sun. You see, with the preacher's premise, the best kind of life is found with wisdom and money that is an inheritance. And this wisdom, also that he calls it the excellence of knowledge there, it gives whatever life can be had in an under-the-sun world. This is more advice along the lines of, hey, look, I know life is meaningless. I, I know it's vain. Just do the best you can. There's a lot of that advice sprinkled through the book of Ecclesiastes. But then he goes on, verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the prosperity of the be joyful, excuse me, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Here he's understanding that God is in charge, right? But look at what he says there in verse 13. Consider the work of God. <clears throat> Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Understanding the relative place. (coughs) Excuse me. A man to God is important in the peaceful acceptance of life under the sun. You see, from the preacher's perspective, this has the same sense as fatalism. God's rigged everything. There's nothing you can do about it. So, So just enjoy it the best you can. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, continue. God's appointed everything. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't find out anything that will happen after you. Again, you see in verse 14, he's drifting again towards despair. Considering that God's control over all things leads him to believe that the system is set so that we can know nothing that comes after us of what will come after him. And so again, he's drifting off towards despair again. In verse 15, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous nor overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. Friends, don't be fooled by that last religious-sounding line. These are words of despair. These are words of unbelief. I've seen everything, he says in verse 15, in the days of my vanity. Well, there's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. What good is it? The the, the just man, the righteous man, he dies and he goes to a a hole in the ground. And there's a wicked man. He dies and goes to a hole in the ground, even worse than that. Sometimes it seems like the righteous man goes to the grave sooner. Sometimes it seems like the wicked man is exalted to a place and he prolongs his life in wickedness. And therefore, look at what he says in verse 16. Well, don't be overly righteous or overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Everything in moderation, right? You know, sure, do that God thing. Just do it in moderation. Go out and have your wicked fun. Just have it in moderation. This is his advice. And again, it's a despairing, rooted in vanity, foolish, if we would say this, look at the world. You see, what he says is, have a balanced approach to living. Be righteous, but not too much. Be wise, but not too much. 
Be wicked, but not too much. Be foolish, but not too much. Now, this is a very common approach to life, thinking that everything is good in moderation. Friends, even though it has some truth in it, it doesn't define a good or a wise life. I want you to think of two men. I want you to think of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I want you to think of the Apostle Paul as well. Would either man would either man be looked at and would we look at that man and say, well, there's a balanced life? No, we would look at both Jesus and Paul and say those were men in some ways who seemed to be very unbalanced, would we not? But no, they were on the right track. Because they understood that the truth of life wasn't moderation for moderation's sake, but the truth of life was to glorify God. You see, their understanding of eternity and accountability made them, in the view of many, unbalanced people. But they were wise people before God. Verse 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. I think this is some very good advice from Solomon. He sneaks it in every once in a while here in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Well, first of all, in verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than the rulers of the city. That's true. A wise man, even with an under the sun present, he'll see and appreciate the value of wisdom, that it gives more strength than ten rulers of the city. And then he also notices here that there's not a just man on earth who does good and who does not sin. Well, that's also a good uh, observation there, verse 20. But I especially prize what he says in verses 21 and 22. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart is known that you have cursed others. Wisely, the preacher knew that we should not take the words other people say about us too seriously. People often say unguarded things that are not deeply felt. Now, we say such things about others. And we wouldn't them to take, we don't want them to take to heart what we've said, right? Then why do you take to heart everything other other people say? Do you understand what he's saying here? Look, you've said unwise and ungracious things about other people. Things that you'd be horrified if they heard you say them. Well, then why, why should you be so upset if you hear that somebody says something like that about you? You've said things like that, and you don't really mean it. Or or maybe you mean it at the moment, right? But you don't really mean it. Well, then you just let it go, right? I think this is real wisdom. In his book, Lectures to My Students, Charles Spurgeon gave a chapter to this verse, which he titled, The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And in that chapter, he gave a very wise advice to pastors and to Christian workers that they should sometimes, if not often... Simply overlook unkind and thoughtless things that other people say and do. Look, let me put it to you this way. Do you want to be judged by your worst moments? No. Then why do you judge other people by their worst moments? And so this was wise advice from Solomon. Anyway, that wisdom doesn't last for very long because he's back to frustration already in verse 23. 
All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness. You see, as the preacher gave wise advice for living, he understood that his desire to be wise was not always fulfilled with true wisdom. Wisdom was out there, but he couldn't really grasp hold of it. Instead, what did he find? You'll see he found man's sinfulness. Verse 26, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I found, says the preacher. Adding one thing to another to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, these only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." Friends, I'm glad that the poetic phrasing of this makes it a little more, you know, difficult to get his plain meaning. And I appreciate the poetic phrasing. But let me just tell you what the plain meaning is. He says, listen, I I found that there were a lot of sinners in the world. And he says, first of all, right there in verse 26, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. In his unsatisfying search for wisdom, Solomon understood that a woman could be a danger and a trap. It was important to not let that happen. He says, he who pleases God shall escape from her. Now, knowing that Solomon wrote this, it makes us wish we knew more about when Solomon wrote this. At what point in his life? You see, because we know this from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart against the Lord and after other gods, and that his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God. Solomon himself was caught in these snares and nets and fetters that he mentions in this very text. Now, those who think that the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's statement of repentance and evidence that he turned his heart back to the Lord, that this they believe this section is Solomon's way of saying, I understood my error and I turned from it. Those who are unsure of Solomon's repentance place the writing of Ecclesiastes in an earlier time in his life. It's really a fascinating question. And one, at least in my mind, that has no definite answer. Was Solomon someone who pleased God by escaping from this trap? Or was he the sinner trapped by this woman? But I tell you, I don't think he has a very high view of women. Did you see what he said there in verse 28? Which my soul seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found. I found one wise man among a thousand. But then look at the last line. But a woman among all these I have not found. Do you understand what he's saying there, folks? Solomon could find a rare one man in a thousand who had wisdom. But among women, he couldn't find a single one that had wisdom. Now, I think the problem was not with the women. I think it was with Solomon, don't you? 
look, you got to remember, this was a man who had a pretty jaded view of women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And then he says, you know, I can't find a sharp woman around. Look, it's like... I don't mean to offend anybody with this illustration, but it's the best way I could think of it. It's like if you lived your whole life at the Playboy Mansion and you said, I can't find a smart woman. It's really that kind of thing, right? I I mean, he wasn't selecting women for his harem based on their intellectual or philosophical prowess, right? And it wasn't an environment that was interested in the development of their intellectual or or, uh, philosophical abilities. And so in that sort of degraded atmosphere, Solomon, no wonder. This is a reflection of you, Solomon. It's not a reflection of women. It's really a reflection of the deep despair and, and dysfunction in Solomon's life. But he says this. It's at the end, verse 29. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon understood that God made man without sin, but man has, since the time of Adam, sought out many schemes of sin and rebellion against God. It is true that God made man upright in the garden, but we've turned from him ever since. Going on now to chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? You see, Solomon searched for a wise man who knew the interpretation of a thing. He could find one man in a thousand who could do it. He couldn't find any among the women that he knew. But Solomon knew that wisdom makes a man happier, even if it's in an under-the-sun kind of way. It makes his face shine. The sternness of his face is shame. And if you're a wise man, you're going to keep the command of the king. That's why he says there, Keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. You see, the preacher understood what Paul would later write in Romans chapter 13, that we should obey governmental authority as part of our obedience to God. You see, we do this not primarily to honor king or government, although that's part of our obligation. Primarily, we honor God and we do it by honoring the authorities that he has instituted. It's part of our obedience to God. And yet he says, where the word of the king is, there's power. And who can say to him, what are you doing? And there's a reason why it's wise to obey a king. Their power, even though sometimes it's used unrighteously, it makes it unwise to fail to keep the king's commandment or to show him respect. Going on now, verse 5. He says, He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. But a a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment through the misery of man increases greatly. 
for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There's no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied to my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time which one man rules over another to his own hurt. You see here, he's just trying to put things into perspective. You obey the king, you'll experience nothing harmful. But because every matter, he says, has a time and a judgment, as he concludes there in verse 6. But then going on to verse 7, he says, Though the misery of man increases greatly, he doesn't know what will happen. You see, he understood that for every matter there was a time and judgment. But he also understood, we don't know what the time and the judgment is. A wise man's heart may discern both time and judgment, but certainly not perfectly. And all are not wise. But at the bottom of it all, nobody, verse 8, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. You see, he felt the man was powerless in the face of death. Under the sun, he saw that death allows no winners and there's no release from that war. That's why he can say in verse 9, all this I've seen and I've applied it to my heart. Every work that's done under the sun, there is a time when which one man rules over another to his hurt. Part of man's misery on this earth is to be ruled over other people who will sometimes oppress them. And then verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And there they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity because the sentence of an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This troubled Solomon greatly. He saw that the wicked died, and that they were buried, and that their evil was soon forgotten, instead of being memorialized in infamy. And with this under-the-sun premise, Solomon despaired that the wicked are not punished after their death. What's wrong with this, Lord? Where's the justice for them? I've seen it the same way in my travels or in my readings as well. I've been to countries where dictators of the past. I've been to to, to Russia. And I've seen in a way that sometimes mystifies me how Stalin is exalted. I think here's a man who's multiplied, uh, who's murdered, I should say, multiplied millions. I mean, millions measured in the tens and twenties and thirties of the millions. And yet he's regarded in many ways as a national hero. This is the kind of thing that would drive Solomon nuts. Say, well, where is it? If this life is all there is, if we live it under the sun, where's the appropriate judgment for a man like that? Until it goes on. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. If wicked men are often not punished after death, they're also often not punished in this life. And all of this added to the sense of meaninglessness for Solomon. So going on now, verse 14. There is a vanity which occurs on earth 
that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. Lord, why is it that there's righteous men who have it bad and there's wicked men that have it good? Lord, it's vanity. It's meaninglessness. Now, again, I just want to paint the brief background of the book. Solomon is deliberately excluding from his mind a future judgment where God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. He's saying, I'm not even going to consider that. That's not even in my thinking. And if you take that completely out of your thinking and you operate in the premise of an under-the-sun world, then I don't blame you for despairing like Solomon despairs. I don't blame you for looking around and saying, listen, I see a lot of wicked people who get along very well, and I see a lot of righteous people who suffer. It's not right, and there's nothing that seems to be done about it. Going on now, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better in the sun under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. For this will remain with him in the labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep night or day, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. I find it very interesting. In verse 15, he says, yeah, it's all meaningless. So you know what? Just do the best you can with this world, right? Eat, drink, enjoy the good things of life as you can. Try not to think about the big things of life. Try not to stare into the emptiness of your own soul. Do the very best you can to forget about it. But then he says in verses 16 and 17, that I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Yeah, I think you should just live and have a good time, but that doesn't satisfy either. There's too many questions that are unanswered. And then he says it again, dwelling very much on the same themes now coming into chapter 9. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. I'll go on. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked to the good and to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is who fears an oath. Here is an evil that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to the living, there's hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Friends, I, I take your silence there as an indication that you're connecting with some of the despair 
of the preacher here. The preacher of Ecclesiastes. He says, listen, here it is. I, I think that God's in control of it all, but, but I can't see that he's a God of love. That's what he's saying there in verse 1. Let, let me read it to you again. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. Can you really know if God loves or hates a person by what goes on in their life? Can you look at the circumstances of, the, of a person's life or at your own life and say, well, God loves them. Look, they got it all easy. Oh, God hates them. Look, they've got it all bad. No, you certainly can't, can you? Haven't you known many godly, lovely people who have had a very tough time of it? And haven't you known some very wicked people who seem to have an easy time of it? You, you, can't, you can't correlate the two. How does that work? You, you can't measure the love of God by what happens to you in life. You have to measure the love of God by what Jesus did on the cross. That's the only way you can measure the love of, love of God. But he looks all around us and in his under the sun perspective. He says, listen, I can't see it. Everything seems meaningless because there's good and there's bad. There's the righteous and they're unrighteous. But you know what? They all end up in a hole in the ground. And I can't see what is beyond that hole in the ground. Death levels everybody. And he says, this is an evil that is done under the sun. The only hope there is is why you're still alive. Because as he said, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's a powerful despairing idea. And in the midst of all of this, anchored in all of this despair and his under-the-sun perspective, look how he tries to cheer himself up in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he's given you under the sun. All the days of your vanity, for that's your portion in life and the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom into the grave where you're going. You catch this, don't you? Oh, go out and make the best of it. Make the best of your meaningless, vain life. That's really the flavor of it all, isn't it? Now, friends, I want to remind you again. Solomon is giving us, in a very powerfully presented way, what we might call true lies. From his premise, he's entirely true. Exclude eternity. Say that there is no life after this life. Say that this life is all man was created for. And we will never answer to our creator for either good or evil. If you cross all of that off of the occasion, then Solomon speaks truth. Your life is meaningless. Your life is vain. Just accept it and do the best you can with your miserable, meaningless life. However, and oh, I can't wait for next week when we finally get to the good news. <laughs> we know that Solomon does not speak from a true premise. He speaks from a common premise 
but not a true premise because we know that there is a world beyond. We know that there is a judgment seat of Christ by which every one of us will give account. We know that there is a separation of the sheep and the goats. We know that there is an eternal king and that there's a choice of eternal destinies. We know these things. And not only does it make life meaningful, it makes everything in life meaningful. But not from Solomon's perspective. Verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, for like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are spared in an evil, snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. You know, Solomon wondered... If this life is all there is, then why doesn't life make more sense in a world that made more sense under the sun Then the swift always would win the race? The strong always would win the battle, yet it doesn't always work that way. Solomon's running up against the wall of understanding that no God has designed this life to be more than just this life. This life is designed as the entry point into the life to come. And time and chance happen to them all. He's struggling with that sense of fatalism. And in a somewhat contradictory way, the one who previously said that God's management of everything, it was real. Now he wonders if it doesn't all happen according to time and chance. Verse 13. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. You know what he's trying to get across to us? The the fleetingness of fame and accomplishment. You know, the, the person that the world applauds today for winning some award or some contest, today's hero is yesterday's fish wrap. It all leaves very quickly, doesn't it? Frighteningly so. You know, the yesterday's hero, didn't you used to be somebody famous? This man who just approached it did this great thing, right? He saved a city. No one remembered. Who cares? His name, his work, it passes into oblivion. And Solomon feels more and more embittered. Verse 16. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Yes. Yeah, let's hear it for wisdom. Wisdom will help you get along better in an under-the-sun world. That's true. Friends, do you know how much one sinner can screw everything up? Let me tell you how one sinner messed everything up. His name was Adam. 
And did he not mess everything up? You and I still live with the echoes, the the, the ripples of the rock that he dropped into the pond of the human race are still reverberating out with every generation. No, it is true. One sinner destroys much good. But I'll tell you, one savior makes all the difference. I'm so happy that I live on this side of the cross. I'm so happy that I know a savior in more detail and in more information than Solomon ever could. He knew about the sinner that destroys much good. We know about the savior who restores all things. I wonder if there's not somebody here tonight. You feel this meaninglessness and this emptiness of life that Solomon spoke. If you do, I want to applaud you. If you can relate to what Solomon's speaking about, I say good on you. You're being honest. You're thinking clearly about the great problems of the human condition. What you haven't thought clearly about is the answer that's provided for you in Jesus Christ. Our human condition is very bad. Think of what Solomon said at the very beginning. The the very beginning of our text for tonight, way back in chapter 7. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Think of when a little child comes into this world. What's its first noise? Is it a laugh? You know, you think other creatures on this earth, they make their characteristic noises very young, right? A little dog barks. A little cow moves. A little kitten purrs. Well, if barking is the dog sound and meowing is the cat sound and mooing is the cow sound. Friends, what's the human sound? It's a scream. That's what babies are born doing. And into this world that has been so affected by the one sinner who destroyed much good. Jesus Christ has come to redeem all things and to make all things new. That's the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, Solomon was the son of David. We have a much greater son of David, Jesus Christ, to put our trust in. As much as Solomon saw the problem of the meaninglessness of life, Jesus brings the answer of a life full of meaning. He said, I've come that you might have life and that you would have it more abundantly. Not a single person here needs to leave this room tonight feeling that you have a meaningless life. It is full of meaning given to you by Jesus Christ. I applaud for somebody who has the courage to see things as real to life as Solomon did. I applaud you and then I point you to the cross to receive meaning of life in him. That's what Jesus came to do to take away that human sound of a scream and to give us a song instead, right? A song of worship. There's not going to be any screaming in heaven. There's going to be lots of singing. And that's what we'll do together in this life beyond, beyond the sun that Solomon has not yet considered, but we'll get to that next week. Father, we pray.
We pray, Lord, for those who suffer greatly, Lord, and grapple with these great questions of the meaninglessness of life. Lord, in particular, I want to lift up one family before you, Lord, the Frieden family, with the passing of their little girl, Nina. Lord, lift up before you Todd and Rosie and Teddy. Lift them up before you, Lord, that their grief would find redemption and meaning in the Son of God. That every baneful thought of despair would vanish in the midst of the fulfillment that you give to us in Jesus for all things. We just lift them up to you, Lord, even as you lift little Nina up in your arms right now. But Jesus, we thank you that our lives can have meaning in you. We thank you, Lord, that even though one sinner destroyed much good, one Savior brought us new life. We put our trust in him right now. In Jesus' name, amen.